My grandmother was the quintessential hostess. She was the hostess with the most. <laughs> she loved to host people, family and friends, in their little home. And guess what she liked to do most for them when she was hosting them? Feed them, exactly. <laughs> she loved to cook elaborate meals. She loved to experiment with new recipes and try them out on us, as she would say. She loved to serve other people. This was a way of expressing love for people by hosting them and feeding them. Now, the house that my grandparents lived in was just a little house, and it didn't have a dining room. This is a corner of a little eat-in kitchen. And as we would gather around the table in my grandparents' house, my grandmother would always position herself in the chair that was closest to the stove and the section of the countertop so that she could be running back and forth, which wasn't very far, to the table for whatever we might need. Even in the summertime, at their little camp on Center Pond, um, my, grand my grandmother would prepare elaborate meals. And we would usually eat at a picnic table outside, and she would sit herself at, on the bench in the place closest to the door that led right to the kitchen so that she could be running back and forth. Now, we still spend some time at this family camp, in the summer, and we've improved that kitchen significantly since my grandmother died. So it's much better than it was, but I still think, how in the world did she prepare those meals in that kitchen? I mean, she would bake homemade bread and pies and just elaborate meals, big breakfasts, in a, a kitchen that was just about like this big, and the only water that came out of the, the faucet was from the pond. You know, they had to carry the water in. My grandmother was a hostess. And as we would eat meals, whether we were at their home or at their camp, as we were eating, she would be watching to see what was on everyone's plate. So she would say, how about some more mashed potatoes, just as the mashed potatoes were like landing on your plate? Or can I get you another ear of corn as the corn is like coming to you? Or how about some more fruit salad, at which time it was far too late to say no to the fruit salad. She would sort of hover as we were eating so that she could see what anyone might need at any given moment. We often wondered how it was that she actually ever ate anything at these meals because she was so attentive to whatever anyone else at the table might need in that moment. My, my grandmother was the quintessential hostess. To use a biblical image, we might say that my grandmother was a Martha. You know that reference? So let's read that story, for those of you who are wondering what I'm talking about, Martha, because her name wasn't Martha, it was actually Mary. <laughs> <laughs> Although everyone called her May. Uh, I'm going to read this story from the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus visits Martha and Mary. While Jesus and his disciples were traveling, Jesus entered a village where a woman named Martha welcomed him as a guest. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his message. By contrast, Martha was preoccupied with getting everything ready for their meal. So Martha came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to prepare the table all by myself? Tell her to help me. The Lord 
answered, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part. It won't be taken from her. My grandmother was a Martha. And I don't mean that as a criticism, because it was a tremendous gift that she had and that she practiced joyfully. I just mean that she was always on the go. She was a doer. What I remember most was when I was with her, it seemed like she was always either preparing a meal or cleaning up for a meal so that she could prepare for the next meal. That's what it seemed like. Always on the go. And even during meals, she saw it as her responsibility to care for the needs of others. She was a Martha. Can anybody relate to this? We probably have some Marthas in the room. Now contrast that with Mary. While Martha is doing all this work to prepare the dinner, what is Mary doing? Nothing. She's visiting. Nothing. She's sitting at the feet of <laughs> In Martha's eyes, she is doing nothing. Nothing helpful. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, right? She's visiting with him. With him. And this is super annoying to Martha. Now, it might have something to do with the fact that they are sisters. <laughs> Think about sibling relationships in the midst of these dynamics. Super annoying. She says to Jesus, can't you see? I'm doing all the work here. Now, I will say, this is where any resemblance to my grandmother ends, because my grandmother was happy to overfunction. <laughs> she was happy, and she seemed happy. She didn't grumble or complain, and she didn't you know, try, to, try to get anyone to reprimand someone else for not doing that part, including my grandfather, actually. Um, but Martha is annoyed, and so she appeals to Jesus. Come on, Jesus, get her to help me out here. And I can imagine that Jesus' response is less than satisfactory to Martha, because Jesus says, Martha, Martha, which makes me think Jesus has been watching Brady Bunch. Does anybody know that reference? Martha, Martha, Martha. You are worried and distracted by many things. Only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part. It won't be taken from her. In uh, his version of the Bible called The Message, Eugene Peterson interprets Jesus' words this way. Martha, dear Martha, you're fussing far too much and getting yourself worked up over nothing. Only one thing is essential, and Mary has chosen it. It's the main course and it won't be taken from her. So what is this main course, anyway? What is this one thing that is so necessary? Listening. Listening, okay. The word, the word of God, coming right from the mouth of Jesus in that moment. To share presence. To, to share presence in that moment, right? So a few images of this story, because I like to do this. Look at the look on Martha's face here. Doesn't that look say at all? <laughs> Sometimes a picture really isn't worth a thousand words. Come on, Jesus, can't you see what's left in the kitchen? Now Martha looks like she's yelling here, right? And Jesus and Mary are completely unfazed by this. They're just carrying on. Now look at how Martha is 
just bent over, <laughs> bent over with this work that she has to do, and the look of resentment on her face, her eyes. And then this one is my favorite. <laughs> now Sarah looked at that and said, that is disgusting. It is disgusting. <laughs> and perhaps this artist was was employing hyperbole right here. A little exaggeration about all that Mary had to do, but can you find Jesus and Mary in this picture? No. Yeah. We don't usually do this, but look. It's really hidden in that picture. And a little exaggeration about all the work that Martha had to do here, right? Jesus says, only one thing is necessary. Jesus also does not reprimand Martha for doing a lot of work. He just says, you are worried and distracted by many things. And if we're honest, we all have to acknowledge that we too spend a lot of our time being worried and distracted by many things. So there's one thing necessary. Henry Nouwen, the Catholic priest, author, professor, has written so many books, and every one of them is full of pearls of wisdom. Uh, one of his books is called The Only Necessary Thing. And actually, this is not so much a book that Henry Nouwen wrote as it is a collection of things that Henry Nouwen wrote about prayer that someone else compiled and published after his death in 1999. The subtitle of the book is Living a Prayerful Life. The only necessary thing, living a prayerful life. And here's one of the things he says in that book. I am deeply convinced that the necessity to pray, and to pray unceasingly, is not so much based on our desire for God as on God's desire for us. It is God's passionate pursuit of us that calls us to prayer. Prayer comes from God's initiative, not ours. It might sound shocking, but it is biblical to say, God wants us more than we want God. What if it's Jesus that actually initiated this conversation with Mary at his feet, that it was Jesus who wanted that time with her as much as it was she who wanted that time with Jesus? The one necessary thing, to pray and pray unceasingly because of God's desire for us. Now, our theme during this season of life is, is pause. The truth is we are worried and distracted by many things. And these things really do stand between us and a deeper relationship with God. They really do. If we're honest, we have to admit that this is true. So during these weeks of Lent, six weeks, 40 days plus six Sundays, we remember Jesus 40 days in the wilderness. And we're invited to take some time to prepare our hearts for Holy Week, for Good Friday, which is coming, and for Easter. We're invited to hit the pause button. Lent offers us a great opportunity to slow down, to take inventory of our lives, to really assess what's important, where are we being, the people God is calling us to be, and what are some practices that we could take on that would help us to nurture a deeper connection with God. Now, when it comes to Mary and Martha, one thing that I think is not helpful is polarized thinking, as if we could either be Mary or we could be Martha. I said earlier my grandmother was a Martha, but that's actually not the best way to think of it. 
Because all of us are sort of a Mary and Martha, right? I mean, only in a privileged culture could we even think about being just a Mary and never having any work to do, right? Life is about work, and it's about finding the balance between work and slowing down. We don't get to choose whether we are a Martha or we are a Mary. But we do get to uh, pursue a balance between the two. We talk a lot about action in this community, don't we? And when I look around this room and I look at your faces and I think about the things you are doing, you know, whether that's working with asylum seekers or advocacy or serving community meals or setting up chairs for worship or leading small groups or chairing some kind of a work team or on and on. There's so many things that each of us in this room is doing. And these are important things because the doing is part of what helps us to make a difference in the world, to pursue the transformation of the world, which is God's work for us. But we also have to acknowledge at times that God likes our presence as much as our activity, right? God desires our presence as much as our action. There have been several studies uh, published recently uh, talking about Americans' work habits. Actually, three books written within the last few years. One of them is called The Overworked American about Americans' work habits. And all of these studies conclude that in this country we are working longer than anyone else in the industrialized world. You know, in many countries within the last few years there have been laws passed that require time off to prevent work from infringing on private life. In fact, there are 134 countries now that have mandated maximum length of the work week. Do we have one in this country? No. In fact, we're one of the few industrialized countries that does not have a mandatory maximum work week. In fact, we are continuing to go in the other direction. One of these studies in this book called The Overworked American by Juliet Shore claims that in 1990, now I had to stop and think about that, that was 25 years ago, it does not seem that long ago, 1990, but it was 25 years ago. I know, crazy, isn't it? In 1990, it was concluded that Americans worked on average one month longer in a year than Americans worked in 1970. In that 20-year period, Americans began to work a month longer, an extra 30 days of work that were tagged on to our year. One-twelfth increase in the amount of work, the number of hours worked in that time period. How do you think that has gone in the 25 years since 1990? Continuing to go up. So here's a few charts that I found. This is mandated time off each week. And the red, don't, don't get too hung up on all the colors and numbers, but you can see that there are a few countries, in, uh, the United States being one of them, that has no mandated time off each week. And there are a lot that have quite a bit. Here's another one. This was a, is about paid annual leave, vacation, if you will. Wow. There are not many countries that don't have mandated paid annual leave. Not much red on that map. And some have 
more than four weeks. And this is probably the most appalling of all of them. This is paid maternity Almost every country in the world has mandatory paid maternity leave. And you notice there are a few places that have a year paid maternity leave. We have work to do, and this is a spiritual issue, isn't it? This is a spiritual issue. Our balance between work and Sabbath is a spiritual issue. When you, read about the, when you read the Ten Commandments, you think, oh, I would never murder, I would never commit adultery. You know, you go through that list, you think, of course, those are, those are commandments. But there's one that we break all the time and we do it with pride. <laughs> Honor the Sabbath. We do it with pride, we brag about it. I was having a conversation with a, a colleague recently who said, I haven't had a day off in two years, and it was like they were holding up a trophy. <laughs> that is not a trophy. It's a big problem, right? And it's one that we need to wrestle with. Amidst all the work that we do, including the work that we do to serve God and to be a part of God's work of transforming the world, which I think all of us would agree is important. Putting our faith into action is important. But amidst all of that, we also need to hit the pause button to set all of it aside, to be intentional about spiritual practices that renew our spirits and help us to deepen our connection with God. Or we don't have the energy to do all that other stuff that God is calling us to do. We just don't, right? So a couple of weeks ago, actually the last two weeks, we've handed out this sheet. There are many more on the table in the, in the lobby. Get one. But 40 ways to live simply for 40 days of Lent. Now, I read through that whole thing again this week, thinking about which of these practices I wanted to take on. And after reflecting on this scripture passage about Mary and Martha, what hit me was, many of these things on this list are about doing. They're about doing. And they're good things, you know? Start a giveaway box. Uh, say grace when you fill up your tank of gas. Support a local business. Purchase seeds. There's bake a loaf of bread. I mean, there's some great things on there, but a lot of them are about doing. And I'm not saying don't do them. But also, don't just skip over the ones that are about not doing, like practice Sabbath, like unplug from technology, as Sarah talked about last week. Find the balance between the ones that are doing, because I have a feeling many of us in this room would gravitate toward the doing ones, and also take on the not, some of the not doing ones. That's a way to practice living simply during the 40 days of Lent. This week, I want to invite you to be intentional about hitting the pause button. And I actually want to be bold and suggest, challenge you to do that every day this week. <coughs> Read a book for pleasure, that's what gives you life. Listen to some music that fills you with a sense of peace. Go for a walk. And it's going to be warmer this week, so you can actually go through and enjoy it. Create art. Play with your kids, or your grandkids, or your neighbor's kids, or your dog, or your neighbor's dog. Find some way to play. Spend some time in silence. I mean, really. I mean, really silence. 
And not just when you're in the bathroom or in your car, but actually intentional silence. Practice yoga. Read the GPS email that we send out every morning, 365 days a week. And not just in passing when you're on your way to some other more important email, but actually set aside some time and read it intentionally and prayerfully. Read it twice. Read it like you intend to create, to carve out some time with God. Call a friend on the phone that you haven't talked to a while, in a while, especially one that you know is going to make you laugh. Because laughter is restorative. Or do something else that is completely renewing for you, like hitting the pause button on life as usual. Something that gives you life. Nobody is saying that you can't be like Martha some of the time. Attending to the details, doing. There's no way to avoid work, and we shouldn't, because it's important. It's what makes things happen in the world. But if you find yourself resentful, and complaining because you're doing all the work and nobody else is doing anything, then maybe it's time to follow Mary's lead and hit the pause button for a little while so that you can renew your spirit. I want to end with this blessing that I found, which will be tomorrow's GPS if you read that. Um, it's called A Blessing for the One Who is Exhausted. And it's written by John O'Donohue. So just listen to these words. When the rhythm of the heart becomes hectic, time takes on the strain until it breaks. Then all the unattended stress falls in on the mind like an endless, increasing weight. The light in the mind becomes dim. Things you could take in your stride before now become laborsome events of will. Weariness invades your spirit. Gravity begins falling inside you, dragging down every bone. The tide you never valued has gone out, and you are marooned on unsure ground. Something within you has closed down, and you cannot push yourself back to life. You have been forced to enter empty time. The desire that drove you has relinquished. There is nothing else to do now but rest and patiently learn to receive the self you have forsaken for the race of days. At first your thinking will darken and sadness will take over like listless weather. The flow of unwept tears will frighten you. You have traveled too fast over false ground. Now your soul has come to take you back. Take refuge in your senses. Open up to all the small miracles you rushed through. Become inclined to watch the way of rain or snow when it falls slow and free. Imitate the habit of twilight, taking time to open the well of color that fostered the brightness of day. Draw alongside the silence of stone until its calmness can claim you. Be excessively gentle with yourself. Stay clear of those vexed in spirit. Learn to linger around someone of ease who feels they have all the time in the world. 
gradually you will return to yourself, having learned a new respect for your heart and the joy that dwells from your waking slow time.